just remind me a little bit of kind of being at home in our, our church. Our church is filled with people who love one another and care for one another. And when I walk into this place, I can tell you are people who love one another and care for one another. And I sense you also have a love for God's Word, and that's something that's just very, very important to my heart this morning. And so, uh, you know, we have two hands, ten fingers. And besides being fingers, you know, these are bookmarkers, okay? So there's two places this morning I want you to turn. Main passage we're going to look at in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and then want to um, ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to be using the ESV version of the Bible this morning, but um, I think whatever version you have, you can follow along, because paying attention to words is really important to me, and I want you to make sure you pick up on some of the significant words that we're going to look at. You found it? All right. All right, good. All things are possible. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, so First um, Peter 1 and then Hebrews chapter 12. And um, I will tell you a little bit what's, what's on my heart. You know, being in the ministry for 40 uh, years, you know, that's a short time compared to eternity. But I've been around long enough to uh, watch kind of some transitions in the uh, church. I remember 40 years ago in the ministry, um, I was concerned about what I saw sometimes in what maybe we would call the traditional church. And sometimes some of those tr- traditions may be having uh, limitations and hurting us as well. Today, as we move um, into our age, I get a little more concerned about the, uh, the modern church. Now, the modern church has a lot of good things going for them, indeed. And I just appreciate the way that uh, uh, the Lord uses that to minister to a lot of different types of people and reach a lot of different types of people. But, you know, um, in our church, you know, I, I remember last year I had someone walk in and said, you know, I really can't tell if you are a contemporary church or a traditional church. And I said, why do you need to? <laughs> My point being, why don't we just be the church of the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ? Amen. And, you know, why should we put so much emphasis on style, just being that which honors the Lord Jesus? And so I, I guess what I would say to you is I've just kind of become concerned today that the message of holiness is maybe something that's been a little watered down, maybe a little bit left out of the church, and it's become something that's really big in my own heart, in my own life, uh, for me personally, but also for our church. I, I, I want our church to be a holy church. Now listen to me. Not a holier-than-thou church. Amen. You know, we all sin, we all mess up, we get that. But there's something complete. As a matter of fact, I, I, today I still have this idea that when I mention the word, use the word holy, our mind can sometimes take us to some places and have some misperceptions of what the, you know, 40 years ago, starting in the ministry, when someone was called holy, the first thing you notice is how they dressed. There was, if you will, kind of a holy expectation of dress, and, you know, all the suits and ties and things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you could kind of dress holy and not necessarily be holy. I had to learn over the years that there's a whole lot more to, to being holy than just the way a person dressed. And then, you know, there's this kind of phase where holiness was kind of connected to keeping a set of rules and regulations. You know, uh, I'm in Washington now, but I'm from here. I know a little bit about pastoring a church in the South as well. You remember, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't cuss. Well, I'm in favor of you not doing any. I, I would appreciate if you would not drink, not smoke, not cuss while we're in church today, Okay. 
Actually, I think those are pretty good disciplines for a person's life. But it didn't take me too long to realize a person could not drink, not smoke, not cuss, but still miss the whole concept of holiness. <clears throat> and so we need to remember. I think those things are important. We've got to kind of, kind of keep them in perspective. And then, as I said a few moments ago, I think there are some people who somewhat turned off the concept of holiness because they have had an encounter with a holier-than-thou type of person. And so uh, when the Bible talks about the word holy, it really doesn't have any of those things in mind. So I want you to begin with a verse with me today in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Let's just talk about the importance of the subject itself. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Pretty strong line. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the thing we have to realize is I believe Hebrews is written to first century Jewish Christians, Jews who had been saved and were being severely, severely persecuted for their faith in ways like you and I could never understand. And here in the Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. My point is simply this, that when we read a line like that, oftentimes we associate it with the whole issue of being saved and being converted. But I believe this is speaking to people who are already saved, and when we hear that, we need to listen to the context of the passage as to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And when he says, no one will see the Lord, the whole idea of seeing the Lord, it's one of those Jewish words and Jewish phrases and the whole idea of seeing the Lord is the idea, you know, we have eyes in our head. But Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3 says, God has also put a set of eyes, if you will, in our heart. And it's so much more important that we see with the eyes of our heart than it is we see with the eyes of our head. Amen. And that's really kind of what the Jews had in mind when they were talking about seeing the Lord. And the real idea is this, is we see his presence. We see his activity. We have a sense that he's working around us and he's working in us. You know, I was talking about the traditional church a while ago. I've been around a lot of people who uh, <clears throat> have been saved. They've trusted Christ. They kind of come to church, sometimes kind of sit on their backsides, and that's all there is to the Christian faith. No, no. He wants us to see the activity of God in our life. Folks, listen to me. We, we ought to have fresh, meaningful, and significant contemporary testimonies to the activity of God. We ought to be able to walk up to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, what is the Lord doing in your life? We ought to be able to testify that we have seen, eyes of the heart have seen him working in our life. So that's really what he's talking about here in the book of Hebrews. Now watch what it says. It says here that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. All right? So if you don't, if you don't give the rightful place to this, the scripture says it can have a bearing upon whether or not we see his activity working in our life. So if holiness is so important. Let's kind of take a few moments here and kind of get a grasp of the definition of holiness. When the Bible, you know, there's a lot of different biblical definitions. There's kind of three that, uh, that I've come up with that I think are important to me. First of all, the word holy means to be morally blameless. And I don't want to overlook this. You know, folks, the bottom line is... Um, We're not dealing with or touching on moral issues in the church anymore, and that kind of concerns me. But the the whole idea is is holy means to be morally blameless. 
And so we understand that our morality, if you will, is at least a slice of the pie of the definition of holiness. But the second definition is one that I've always liked. It's the idea, you know, when you hear holy, I would encourage you to think of the word separated, okay? It's the idea of being separated from sin. Now, that's a negative. As a matter of fact, if I were to ask most people today, what would be your definition, what would be your idea of holiness, they would kind of throw that one out there. And we understand that. But it's not just the idea of being separated from sin. We kind of get that. It's the idea also of being separated to God for his plan and his purpose in our life. Kind of like I said a while ago, you know, we could be not doing all these things, rules and regulations, but still miss the point that God has called us to be separated unto him, and he has a holy plan and a holy purpose for our life. Let me give you the third part of the definition. You know, I'm not an educated guy, so the cool thing about that is I can just make up words. One of my favorite words to use that I just think is really cool, that really kind of describes who God is, is his otherness. Otherness. His otherness. Can you say that with me? Otherness. All right? I think it's U-T-T-E. No, no. Otherness. All right? It's his other. And the idea is this. You may remember what God said to, to David back in Psalms. He says, he says, basically, my rendition would go something like this. David. You thought I was altogether like you. Boy, were you off. Man, did you mess that one up. May I say, every time we think of God, he wants us to think of the terms of of his otherness. That he is not like anybody else. That he is never like a human being. He doesn't think like a human being. He doesn't act like a human being. Matter of fact, we're called to be holy like him. We're going to look at that verse in just a moment. In other words, he's always trying to call us up to where he is, not reduce him down to where we are. And when you get to, as a matter of fact, you and I, we don't have the right to reduce the holiness, the holiness of God to fit our own uh, comfort levels. And so we need to get that over and over again. Now get this. So his holiness is his otherness. I want you to say that with me. His otherness. All right? One more time. His otherness. You can go to tell people to watch that. I learned a new word in church today. It's not really a word, but it's the whole idea that God is unlike any other being. Listen, when you're in times of despair and despondency and trouble, does it not encourage your heart? Hey, Bottom line, that's not when you want to go to Joe and Jim and Cindy Lou and someone like that. No, no. When you're in a time of despair and despair, it does not encourage your heart that you can go to a God who doesn't think like, act like anybody else in the world. Amen. Now, if holiness for God means his otherness, it also, also means our otherness as well. That we don't think like the rest of the world. I think Today, there are some Christians that kind of pride themselves in the fact that they think so contemporary. They think like the rest of the world. Well, there's parts of the world we, we're called not to think like and not to look like and not to act like as well. So I ask you to turn to Hebrews 12. Then remember, you got all those extra fingers there. The other bookmark was 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. If you're not familiar with these verses, I would encourage you. These are really 
easy to memorize, really easy to get down. And there's such encouraging marching order verses for us today as a church. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. And it says this. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How many agree that's pretty simple? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Say that with me. You shall be holy, for I... One more time, come on. You shall be holy... Listen, there's some church down the street needs to hear this. Let's just shout it out. Here we go one more time. You shall be holy... Now notice, the direction here is not asking God to be like us. It's asking us to be like God. Now, that assumes two things. And it all begins with the concept of love this morning, because the bottom line is, I have to somewhere in my heart find a place where I'm saying, Lord, I love you enough to want to be like you. I care about you enough. I care about your presence in my life enough to want to be like you. The second thing it assumes would be this. Naturally, and on my own, in my flesh, I'm not. And, 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 God, if you're calling me to be a trailer, one who becomes holy after you, I must first look into your holiness and understand who you are. Now, First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, the reason I like it, it just breaks down to a real, real easy outline. First of all, God is holy. Number two, we're called to be holy. Pretty easy to remember. God is holy. So the first thing it asks us to focus on is the holiness of God. I want you to turn several other verses with me today. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation in chapter 4. And while you're turning there, with the other hand, I want you to write this one down if you're taking notes. I have come to believe this is really something... This is going to sound so oversimplified. You're going to go, why did I even pay to come this morning? But I, I think it's kind of significant as well, and I think it's something we're losing sight of. I have come to settle in my heart, in my mind towards God, that God's essential character is his holiness. God's essential character is his holiness. You know, um, you know in Galatians chapter 5 where you read about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Um, some people think that the, what that really is is fruit of the Spirit is love manifested in joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the list goes on and on and on. I have come to believe that God's essential character, his number one character, his primary character is his holiness. I want to follow that up by saying to you, not only have I come to believe that his primary character is his holiness, I think it's far more important than we realize. I think God has designed for that to have a spiritual impact upon our life today. Now, let me kind of make a case for that, okay? In Revelation chapter 4, you know, John the Revelator, if you will, has transferred the vision into the heavens and there's all kinds of discussion as to what Revelation 4 is talking about. But I believe if, without a whole lot of doubt, it's giving us a picture into eternity, what eternity is going to look like, what us standing around the throne, sitting around the throne is going to look like. 
Has it ever occurred to you the song we're going to be singing, the things that we're going to be singing over and over again? Now, I know you've heard this before, but play close, open the ears, pay close attention. Remember a while ago, I talked about the heart, the inside. It has eyes, also has ears, okay? I know everyone has brought these ears today on the head. Let's make sure we also open the ears of the heart, okay? Now, listen to this. Revelation 4, verse 8, and the four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is is to come. Did I get that wrong? I know if you're following. I know if you're following. I know, I know you have ESV, but you follow what I'm saying. Mercy, mercy, mercy is Lord God Almighty. Grace, grace, grace is Lord God Almighty. See, if you keep on doing this heresy stuff, we're going to kick you out of here. (laughs) Now listen to the refrain. Listen to the refrain that I believe is going to be coming, Kenny, from us for out eternity. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Woo! Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. And then he comes with the, woo, again. <laughs> it's getting me excited. So, yeah, I want you to say it with me. That's what I do with our church. Here we go. <coughs> holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Yeah, it's good. Don't know how to spell that. <coughs> and I begin to read this and kind of pay attention to it. And I realize the modern church's version might be love, 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 and grace, 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 and mercy, mercy, mercy. And listen, in no way, shape, or form am I here to put those down. They're absolutely essential to the gospel. But please hear what I'm, about, what I'm going to be saying about this. And I realize that the word holy in Scripture is the word that is more often associated with God than any other word. Any other word. And throughout eternity, there's going to be this recognition. The fact that, you want to say it with me again? Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Yeah. And I've come to believe that that's his essential character. May I say this without getting in trouble? I've also come to believe a little bit that maybe we've forgotten that. And maybe we have missed that just a little bit. We're hearing today, you know, church statistics and numbers are going down and stuff like that, so we have to reach people. And I'm all in favor of reaching people, so don't send me any nasty email or anything like that. But I will tell you, when people come into our church, I want our people to love them, and I want them to love one another. Can I say this? I most want them to love God. I most want them to love God. Holy, holy, holy. As a matter of fact, let me take it one step further. I've come to believe that when we make the mistake of putting his love above his holiness, we actually get to appreciate, get to a place where we don't appreciate his love as we should. Let me say it to you this way. Um, Jesus Christ died up on the cross for our sin. Anybody believe that? 
Anybody grateful for that? Now think about that with me for just a moment. Do you understand exactly why that had to happen? It had to happen because God's holiness demanded a sacrifice. That's why we have the entire Old Testament system. His holiness demanded a sacrifice. As a matter of fact, when you stop and think about his holiness, you understand that his holiness could have condemned you and I to death, hell, and the grave forever, forever. And he would have been perfectly just in his holiness to do that. Isn't that amazing? Now comes his love. When God didn't, God, God was not obligated to rescue us. Now comes his love. Now, when you understand how holy he is, then you begin to say, okay, but in spite of that, because of his love, he made a sacrifice. And on top of that, it wasn't just anybody. The sacrifice was his own son. His own son. His own son. But what makes that so amazing is how holy he is. And if we miss how holy he is, I'm afraid sometimes we're going to miss the significance of his love as well. As a matter of fact, turn to Matthew 26. You may remember this discussion Jesus had with a few lawyers one morning, religious leaders. And uh, listen to the detail. Matthew 22, verse 36. Where did I ask you to turn? 26? That's a good passage, shoot. Um, let's look at Matthew 22 and verse 36. <clears throat> Notice they came and asked Jesus a singular question. Verse 36 says, Teacher, which is the great commandment, singular, in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Think about that. Teacher, what is the great? We're not he said he didn't ask him the top three. Correct? So what is the greatest commandment in law? He says, you really want to know? I said, yeah. So okay, here it goes. Now, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And Jesus punctuated it by saying, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he said, now, the second one is a lot like it. It's also a commandment of love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this. When he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, notice, notice, it was, it was a commandment, but it was the second one. The first one, everybody say the first one. The first one said, no, no, we're going to start right here. Teach it. what's the greatest? Single greatest. He says, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart mind, and soul. It was first. It was first. It's like I said to you a few moments ago. We so want our people to love one another. But if we were given a choice 
between loving one another and love God, we most, we most, 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 most want them to love God. That's the greatest commandment. See, that's elevating his holiness, if you will, to the right and proper place. Turn to the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. This is where it begins to apply to us. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says this. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God, that God is light and in him there is not very much darkness at all. Oh, I like the correction. Come on, did I mess it up? Yeah, no, if you're listening, let's do it again. This is the message we have heard from, heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him, help me here, church, there's what? No. How much darkness? No. I need to tell you something, folks. God cannot take a dirty joke. He is absolutely, perfectly pure and holy and righteous. You know, I'm, a, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this, but folks, if, if that verse is true, and I believe it is, it means we ought to pay attention to some of the TV shows we're watching, some of the movies that come across the screen, some of the music that goes through our ears, because we're called to be holy like he is, and it says in, my Bible says, I don't know what your Bible says, my Bible says in him, there's not very much darkness. No, that's the way we treat him. My Bible actually says, there's no darkness in his character whatsoever. Now, you know what that means? That means there's never an occasion in which God does not know what to do. That means there's never an occasion in which he makes a wrong decision. Now, see, you and I need to know that. Because when we find ourselves in a difficult place between a rock and a hard place, and we go to God, this is where faith affects our holiness. We need to know that in him there's no darkness at all. In him there's complete light. And he's absolutely holy and he's absolutely perfect in every decision. He is incapable of thinking anything wrong. He's incapable of making... Hey, how many agree us here today? Just usins. That's another word I use. Usins. We're plenty capable of making mistakes. We're plenty capable of blowing it. Not him. Not him. And he's never thought anything about your marriage, anything about your, your family, anything about your finances... Listen, if you go to him for help, there's no way he could ever, ever, ever give you a wrong answer. You know why? Because he's holy. Absolutely holy. First John, First Peter 1 says, God is holy. That's the first part of the outline. The second part says, now I want you to be holy as well. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me say this again, folks. Um, we, uh, one of the words I've been hearing a number of years now is that we need to be relevant. 
Well, I, I agree we need to be relevant, but we need to be holy as well. And the scripture says that we ought to be holy in all of our conduct. And again, we have no right to take his holiness and bring it down to a level to feel our comfort. He is absolutely holy. Now, think about what Peter has said. God is holy. You be holy. God is holy. You be holy. And uh, I've been reading this little uh, book. Maybe some of you had it on your shelf for years. I read it not too long after I became a believer many, many years ago. It's um, by Jerry Bridges. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. Simple little book. And, and uh, he says something in there. It wasn't like profound to other people, but for me it was really good. He said, I think one of Satan's greatest strategies is to keep the people of God confused as to God's part and man's part when it comes to being holy. I thought it was a pretty good statement. Can I say it again? He says he thinks that Satan, one of Satan's greatest strategies is keeping the people of God. Do you have any people of God? How many saved people here today? Any saved people here today? Any people of God here? Only three people raised their hand. I got to do a different sermon. Let's try this one more time, all right? Any saved people here today? All right, good. He said one of the devil's greatest strategies is keeping the people of God confused about the difference between God's part and our part when it comes to personal holiness. Now, First Peter says he's holy. We've already settled it. First part of the outline. But then he turns right around and he says, if you can imagine the Holy Spirit having a great big old long finger. I don't know if you've ever seen his finger. And sometimes he takes that great big old long finger and he points it right at you. He says, he says now, I've just told you that God is holy, but now I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. He wants me to be holy. Say it with me. He wants me to be holy. Look at the person next to you and say, and he wants you to be holy. This is so simple. You know what becomes so clear in that passage? If there's a holiness, when it comes to our personal holiness, there's a part that God's responsible for, and there's a part that you and I are responsible for. You know, I, I think probably one thing that's changed over the years since I've been in the ministry for a long, long time, here's what I tell our people. When it comes to spiritual growth and discipleship, and today as we apply it to this concept of holiness, I've come to believe this. It is never, ever, 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 ever our power. It always has to be his power. We can do nothing in our power and our strength. Got that? Now listen, there's two sides to this. Never our power. But whether or not we grow spiritually and mature spiritually, and in this case, whether or not we become holy, never our power, but almost always our decision. Almost always our decision. 
And I'll tell you what I've learned in my own, this is my own personal testimony. I'll tell you what I've learned in my own personal life. There's times I've been a little upset with God because, you know, I, I need him to come through. I need him to do something for me. I need him to show me his love and his comfort, his answer, whatever it is. He's waiting on me. He's waiting on me. He said, I'm not going to move till you move. He says, you be holy. He said, I'm already holy. I'm trying to make you like me. He said, in other words, I've already told you, I'm partly responsible. He said, but you take the next step. You be holy. You be holy. Wow. And I've come to realize that one of the reasons or one of the ways that we become holy has to do with our view on sin. Sin, S-I-N. Four-letter word, sin, S-I-N. Guys are talking about a marriage conference and men's conferences and when women's conferences and he's just doing the financial stuff. We we do the same kind of stuff. Uh, you know, as a pastor of a church for now for thirty something years, I've never asked our people to come to a sin conference. If your pastor got up and said, "Hey, next week, folks, listen, we've never done this before." But make sure you save the dates. Next weekend, we're going to have an entire weekend sin conference. Everybody sign up for that? Or is that the weekend you're out of town? (laughs) Not a popular subject. I get that. But here's what I've come to learn in my own life again. Most of my experiences, I I have my own self-illustration. The more I know about sin, actually, the better off I am. The more I know how to deal with it. You know, as long as I try to keep it covered and don't deal with it, that always, always puts me at a disadvantage. And when it comes to this issue of personal holiness, what I really come to realize, until I'm willing to face sin, deal with sin, look at sin for what it really is, I'm really not serious about doing my part, my part, when it comes to personal holiness. You know, there's that passage in Romans chapter 6, and I know your pastor loves Romans chapter 6. If we could go back and just grab a few verses from that, if you would turn there with me. Romans chapter 6. And as you're turning there, you know, holiness has two sides. Two sides. It is true, now listen closely, that when we get saved, we become positionally holy, positionally righteous in the Lord. He makes us holy. Hey, listen, you remember the Holy Spirit even called the Corinthians holy. If you knew anything about the Corinthians, they were not heads. They were immature. They were immoral. They were self-centered. They were immature. They were immature. On and on and on. And he still called them holy people. Not necessarily because they were practicing holy people, because they were holy people, because he had made them holy. Now stop right there. We get that. We get the theology of that. That he has made us holy in the person of Christ. He became our sin. All right, we get that. And sometimes we forget that even though he has made us holy, there's still a part of the journey that's our responsibility as well. And we need to hear that. So coming back and getting the right concept of sin. A few verses in Romans chapter 6 I want to show you. We're looking at Romans chapter 6 verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let me read it again. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know, I, uh, I have some friends that are 
are Calvinists. Maybe some of you have kind of a Calvinist background, and I, and, and I love you, but you know, the, this, I'm a little bit concerned today about the message that says, you know, <clears throat> once we're saved, once we come to Christ, we won't sin. How many found that not to be true? How many are sitting next to someone in which you know that's not true? <laughs> your church is my, like my church. It's always easier to confess someone else's sin besides your own, isn't it? Yeah. Man, I know my brother Kenny's a sinner. I know he's, yeah, yeah, we are. And, the bottom, and when people start saying, well, you know, if someone's really saved, they won't sin, they won't sin, sin that much. Sin that much. How much is that? I always ask people, says, who made you the judge and who gave you the chalk? Who gets to decide that? Now, you want to see the real difference between, if you will, believer and unbeliever? I think it's found right here in Romans 6.12. Paul is writing to believers. Let's go through this again. Any believers here today? If you don't raise your hand, I assume the worst of you, okay? All right, we're all right with him. Paul says in command form, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, he's not saying you won't sin. You're going to mess up. He said, but because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Whoa! Power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize God loves you so much he's invested a third of his Godhead into you to empower you from the inside out? That's not what this message is about, but I always have to go there. And you're going to have that supernatural internal advantage in the person of the Holy Spirit, and we can go, whoo, right there if we want to. He says, so the first time you get to decide whether or not sin masters or reigns in your life, and said, so I'm giving you the command by the power of the Holy Spirit, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do you understand an unsaved people person doesn't have that choice? Doesn't have that choice. Now, how does it get to us? You'll notice in verse 12, he uses the word therefore, because it's based on something that's already happened. Now, I'm going to say something here that has become a big deal, and Kenny knows this. I've been preaching in Baptist churches for years, and can I just maybe expose a little bit of a weakness? That sometimes you already decide you love me. You're not going to throw something at me when I say this, huh? Sometimes we fo- focus so much on eternity. We forget about and overlook the power of God for the nasty now and now. What he has for us right now. And when we talk about even the subject matter of Jesus Christ dying upon the cross for us, paying the penalty of our sin, removing God's eternal wrath, so we can spend forever and ever and ever and ever with him, we understand that. But I think sometimes we forget that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, it not only conquered sin and the power of sin for eternity, it conquers the power of sin in our life mm, today. So we can say, do not let sin reign in the mortal body. So how do we get there? Well, go back to Romans 6, verse 5 through 7. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his... He says, if we have been united with him in a death. Think about it. So have we been united with him in a death like his? Absolutely. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We'll come back to that in a minute. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For, look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now watch this. You want to talk about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't miss this. This is so deep. Do you understand when Jesus Christ died upon the cross? Not only did he, did he defeat and destroy God's eternal judgment against him. How many, that's a pretty good deal. But the Bible says that he also transferred his, the, the effects of his power over sin to you. To you. He's entrusted, if you will, as a great spiritual stewardship. Look, he says, okay, I have overcome the power of sin. You live with me. You're united with me. I have now entrusted my power over sin today to you. Isn't that amazing? He said, so for the first time in your life, you can say, do not let sin reign in your mortal flesh. Now, listen, if all of this is going to work, he said, there has to be a change of mind. Let me take you one other verse in Romans 6, verse 11. He says, so that you must consider, Romans 6, 11 says consider. I bet some of your versions have the word reckon there. That is a great, great word. So that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Alive to God in Christ has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to also from this point consider yourself reckon or dead to sin. Dead to sin. Now watch. He says, I don't want to see you show of hands. I just want to ask yourself. I want you to be honest with your spirit, honest with your soul. I wonder today if some of us would be honest enough to say, you know what, this is... There's this area of sin in my life that I wish I could conquer. I wish I could conquer. The good news is you can. Now listen. In order for us to get to the place where sin does not reign, he said you first have to consider, and it's the idea of the changing of a mind. You're going to have to think different about this than you ever have thought in, in your entire life. He says, consider yourself dead to sin. And the idea is you're dead to the whole sphere of sin. You're dead to all the influence. You no longer longer live in the realm of sin. Some of you look like you might be older than 29. Is that honest? That's a lot of grace right there, brother. That's a lot of grace. What I'm here to tell you, because I'm older than 29. I'm talking. I'm talking. I heard that. I've got a heckler back there. I got that. Amen. Uh, No. Now watch this. The bottom line is the longer we've been living as a believer, sometimes our mind can be, we talk about a heart, heart can the mind get a little hardened too. Now watch it. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you get up in the morning and have your quiet time, first off, get up in the morning and have your quiet time. I want you to begin to think, see, you know, not what I say, forget what I say. But Romans chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 says, I don't have to think of my way of myself in sin the way I've ever thought before. And for the first time in my life, I can begin to think of myself as dead to sin dead to the realm of sin. Sin no longer has to have mastery. And I don't know if we're talking about general or specific. Now, why is that important? And what does it have to do with holiness? Here it is. 
We read a few moments ago back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, kind of make a full loop here. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Say that with me again. Without holiness, no one. Remember the eyes of the heart. Would anyone agree today, and I'd like to talk with you, I'd like to share with you. I know Kenny does that as well. Would anyone today agree today? You would like to have the eyes of your heart open so that you can see the activity of God and see the presence of God. Is there anybody in the house that said, Jesus means more to, more to me than just formally coming in on a Sunday morning and sitting in a church? Amen. I want to see the activity of God. I want to see the presence of God in my life. I want to see the power of God in my marriage. But without holiness, the scripture says, you're going to miss that. You're going to miss that. Oh, you'll die and go to heaven. You get that part settled. You're going to miss the power and his presence and his glory and his favor. Brothers and sisters of Walden Road Baptist Church, I got news for you. God wants to put his favor on your life. He wants to put his favor on your marriage. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He says, in order for that to happen, at some point we got to decide. I got. I have the opportunity in Jesus Christ to begin to live above this whole dominating sin factor, and I get to do that. And the residue of that is. We become holy. Hey, not just made holy in Christ. We become holy on a personal level. Let me show you where it leads and I'll be done. We turn one more passage in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1. Beg of you to kind of stay tuned in here. Just, I know you have a different version, but there's some words here that are just really, really important. What are we now about four weeks away from Easter? Easter was about three or four weeks ago. You know, we're trying to do something here at Crossover. We're trying to keep our, our people mindful of the fact that Easter is really something we ought to be. You know, do you understand why we meet on Sundays? Because we're supposed to, we, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Amen? Listen, folks. Jesus Christ really is alive. And we've got to remember that. You know, we may not see him in our work. We may not see him in the world. We may not hear him in the media. I get that. But folks, within the church, within our own lives, Jesus really, really is alive. And he's here with us today. Now watch this. Ephesians 1 verse 16 says, And you know, Paul was praying for the Ephesian church, but can we just this morning make it personal? This is... This is Paul's prayer this morning for Walden Road Baptist Church. The brothers and sisters of this church, listen to what he says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That's the idea of the eyes of your heart being opened. And that's what he says in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, put your name right there, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is where it really gets, gets good. Watch this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? His power. The greatness of his power. Are you, are you hearing me today, brothers and sisters? The greatness of 
his power. Is there anybody in the house that believes in the greatness of his power? Listen. And this isn't just talking historically about what's happened. Paul is updating this when he's talking about the greatness of his power. Yeah, you want to say that with me. The greatness of his power. Can you lift it up a little bit? The greatness of his power. Can you get one more time? A little bit higher. Here we go. The greatness of his power. That's for you. That's for you. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now watch this. The greatness of his power is where it starts in verse 19. Finish with me, verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Paul's talking about the greatness of his power. The Ephesian believers, the wall of the Rome believers raised their hands and said, what do you mean, Paul, power? What are you talking about power? He says, well... The power I'm telling you about is the same power that God put in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I know I'm raising my voice, but I can't say that in a whisper. How many believe that the greatest expression of the power of God is when God put his power on his son in that tomb and brought him out of that tomb so he's alive today. Isn't that something? Oh, but baby, there's more. I want you to go back in verse 19 and find the word power. The greatness of his power. You got to see it with your own eyes. And ESV says it this way. Don't get wrangled in the words. Stay with me. The greatness of his power, I'm so excited, I don't know if I can get this out. The greatness of his power toward us who believe. Woo! The greatness of his power toward us who believe. Kenny, we're going to stay here all day, we're going to stay all day till we believe it. Here we go. The greatness of his power toward us who believe. Can I ask you to put your hand over your heart when you say that? For the greatness of his power toward who? Us who believe. Let's sew it all together. This is what holiness lets you see. You said a few moments ago in a church vote that you believe the greatest power that God ever exerted, ever showed, was when he raised his son from the dead. The sad thing is, my brother... Sometimes we stop right there. Now listen. The Bible says that the same power that God used to raise his son from the dead is the same power that he showed towards us who believe as well. The same power. We sing a little song around our church. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, lives in us, lives in us, lives in us on Monday morning, lives in us on Tuesday, lives in us on those nasty Thursdays, lives in us, lives in us, lives in us. And the reason you want to be holy is because it opens the eyes of your heart so you can see the power of God living in you.
Now let me ask you something. Some of you have had a stinky week. Maybe a stinky month. Maybe some of you have been the cause of the stinky week. Some of you seriously walked in here. There may be marital issues, financial issues, children issues. There may be issues with depression and discouragement in a relationship. In some area of your life, you're feeling hopeless. Well, listen to my question. What situation are you facing in your life today that would require more power than it took for God to raise Jesus from the dead to deal with your situation? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Lives in us. Lives in in us. And being holy before God helps us see that power. Let's pray. Every head bow, every eye closed. just want you to, I'm about to turn this over to your pastor. I just want you to sit there and think with me for just a moment. Lord, what am I facing today? That I need to totally let go and trust you and all your power. Or what part of my life needs resurrection power applied to it? He just promises it's there. 